The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, listeners. This week, we're talking to Mark Brackett. Mark is the founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and the author of the 2019 book, Permission to Feel. You'll hear more about him and his story in this episode. But we want you to know why we chose to speak with Mark, why now, and the framework that he's introducing around the world to help us all become more curious, open, and understanding of our emotions and those of others. We're talking to Mark now because most of us didn't grow up with emotion skills, but in a world where we need to be more aware of our emotions and how they impact our relationships and connections, these skills are becoming critical. Some of our biggest challenges are the ones we face in our social interactions and our emotions underpin many of these challenges. So Mark's work is based in a five-step framework he created called RULER, and it's an acronym. R is for recognizing the occurrence of an emotion, which is the first clue that something important is happening. U is for understanding, which means that we know the cause of the emotion and see how they influence our thoughts and decisions. L is for labeling, which refers to making connections between an emotional experience and the precise term to describe the emotion. E is for expressing, which means knowing how and when to display our emotions, depending on the setting, the people we're with, and the larger context. And finally, R is for regulating, which involves monitoring, tempering, and modifying emotional reactions in helpful ways in order to help reach personal and professional goals. What you're about to hear is the powerful work that Mark is doing to bring emotional intelligence into the world and how you can play a part in that. We're excited to dive in, and we will see you on the other side. How are you feeling? Really? Hey, listeners. Welcome to In the Arena. I'm Jackie Goldberg. And I'm Leah Smart. And today we are talking to Mark Brackett. He is the founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, and he's also a professor in the Child Study Center at Yale University. And his research is focused on the role of emotional intelligence in learning, in decision-making, creativity, relationships, health, and performance. So if you are not already convinced that this episode will be valuable, I, I don't know what else to say. He is the author of Permission to Feel, which is a book that Jackie and I both read. We cannot wait to share more with you all about it. Um, it's about how we unlock the power of our emotions to help our children, ourselves, and our society thrive. So we're going to share some of the framework with you today. And we also want to give you an understanding of why Mark Brackett's doing this work and why it's so powerful. So thanks so much for being here, Mark. Thank you. Excited to talk with you both. Welcome, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us in the arena. Why don't we kick off for our listeners, for those of them who have not read the book, what was your ultimate goal with writing it? I've always been like one of those types of psychologists that I try to not to be self-promoting, you know, and the um, I never like those types of people. I always find that a turnoff. And so writing a book was was weird for me because it was like, then you have to go out on the road and you got to talk about it and you got to do all this stuff. But, you know, the real reason why I wrote it was that I'd spent 30 years of my life as a scientist running around the world doing research and training programs for companies and school systems. And I felt like 
I was not making a lot of progress. And I just felt like, you know, I felt like Willie Loman, you know, from Death of a Salesman. <laughs> I would run around with my little bag and stop off at a school and do my workshop and go to a company and do my hour keynote. Um, and then it just like, there was no follow-up. And I felt, and people kept on asking me, so what's next? And so I decided a couple of years ago to just take everything that I learned from, you know, over 150 studies and other people's research, as well as my own exploration, you know, personally and professionally running around different countries and try to put it in one place and make it accessible. And so that was my goal. I, first of all, I'm laughing. Jackie and I have both been in sales. So it's funny to think about, you know, going around and knocking on people's doors and having that little experience. So I, I'm, I'm laughing at that. You want to talk about your feelings? You know, you want to- <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't all the doors opening for me? I don't get it. <laughs> I used to get slammed in my face, right? It's like, not interested. Yeah. <laughs> well, you said, uh, and, and Mark, you're, you're a beautiful writer. Um, I liked how you mixed writing that felt sort of poetic in a way with this practical practical application of how we work with our emotions. And you, you have this quote that I highlighted on page 13, which is, our inner lives are uncharted territory, even to us, a risky place to explore. I would love to hear how did you and why did you start exploring this work? I have to be honest, you know, I think most of us are emotionally stuck. And it's because our society has not given us the permission to feel. And I just feel like that's the worst thing for people to go through life, not knowing you know who they are in terms of how they feel about themselves and how they feel about other people. I've come to the conclusion that really it's a human right to be self-aware. And if we don't have the language to describe how we feel, we can't be self-aware. We don't, we can't, you know, get to that nuance of, you know, how we're feeling or communicate what's going on for us to other people to get the support we need. And so it is uncharted territory because there's no formal education for this, you know? And uh, my hope is that, you know, I, among with, among many other people, you know, can make a big difference in society by, I'll say it from my work in education, putting emotions on the other side of the report card. Why has it taken us so long to talk about this, right? In your book, you do reference some of the history and science behind emotions, and it's all relatively new. What's taken so long for our society to get here? I think it's multifold. You know, one is like you go back to some ancient histories and, you know, and it's like rule your feelings or they'll rule you. And so the, 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 the Stoic philosophers, you know, were not very interested in feelings. You know, much of our religion, you know, asks us to suppress, you know, our feelings, not to communicate because it's, it makes a, it, that sharing is a weakness. And I can tell you right now that suppressing, repressing, denying is a weakness. Expressing is not a weakness. It's actually um, has tremendous health benefits to all of us. And then also, I think, you know, cognition, which is what we all like know about because it's how we got into college and how we got into, you know, test scores and grade point averages, right? It's all about memorizing things. And our emotional lives are just different. There's no correct answer. And I think that's what makes this work really hard for people because 
you know, two plus two equals four. You have to memorize, you know, those types of bacteria for science class. But the strategy that I might use to help me deal with my anxiety may not make any sense to you. And that's okay because it's about me being the explorer of my own feelings and the things that work best for me to help me have well-being, to build and maintain healthy relationships to achieve my goals. And my goal, if I'm a teacher or a parent, is to not be the knower who puts stuff in your brain. It's for me to be that compassionate friend, parent, teacher, colleague, who helps you to explore your feelings and find the things that work best for you to achieve your goals. And just to put it, you know, I can go on and on about this, as you can see, um, that's a lot of effort and we tend to be lazy. And that's why we say, fine. How are you feeling? Fine. Everything okay? Yeah. <laughs> then we move on. I'm good. Good. I'm good. <laughs> Don't ask me any more questions. Exactly. <laughs> well, oftentimes I, I even, I, I notice um, when I ask a question like that, good is, is also a replacement for having to explore, like you said, because this work is not, it's simple, but not easy. Like it's, and, and so it's simple to be able to say, I feel a certain type of way, but it's not easy to then do what we do next. What we need to do next, which is explore it. Yes. I think that's where this all kind of has fallen apart is that we get used to saying, fine, okay, and then we move on. But let's talk about the pandemic. People have not been okay during the pandemic, most of us. Some people have thrived, uh, but many people have not. And so if you ask me, either one of you asked me how I'm feeling, just go for it. How are you feeling, Mark? I'm feeling like this odd mixture of frustration, fear, anxiety, overwhelm, and, and despair. It's a lot of feelings. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of <laughs> And that's the exact reaction most people have. You're like, but I didn't whoa. want to feel And what, what do I do with that as, yeah. as a listener, as a friend? And then, right, so let's just take a moment and think about this. You asked me how I'm feeling. I'm, I have to feel safe to tell you how I really feel. You've got to listen to what I say. You've got to be comfortable with what you hear. And you got to have the knowledge and skills on what to say to support me. And that's like a lot of, that's a lot, it's a lot. And since we haven't had any formal education, the space, we just move on and we just get trained as we grow up to say fine. Okay. And busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you had referenced before what we can do is be compassionate, be curious, ask the questions. And you actually call this in your book, being an emotion scientist, versus being an emotion judge. Can you share a little bit about that and how we can all be better emotion scientists? As you've read, you know, I had a hero in my life. His name was Uncle Marvin. uh, And he was the one adult who really got me. And, you know, I had two parents who loved me a lot, but had no emotional intelligence education. So my mother was always anxious and she was always having a nervous breakdown and oh my God, you know, don't tell me what's happened to you at school. I'll have a breakdown. And I'm like, wait a minute, mom, like I'm having the breakdown. (laughs) And my father was a tough guy from New York and he'd say things like, son, you got to toughen up. I mean, my father loved me, but he just didn't have any, like, I remember even in middle school, he'd said this one thing to me. I'll never forget. He's like, son, I used to beat kids up who look like you and act like you. I'm like, dad, like, I don't know if that's called like parent child bonding 101, you know? (laughs) 
And he didn't mean it. He just, you know, he was trying to, he was afraid for me because I wasn't a tough guy and he just wanted me to be safe. And that's what he knew to say. Just for everybody to know, it's like, wasn't great. (laughs) Well, I I think you also make a great point is like, our parents, like they're doing, they did the best they can. Totally. And, And even, I know Leah and I have spoken about this with our own families. It's like, you don't, really realize that until you're adult and have the self-awareness and the reflection and the introspection and really taking the time to explore your, your childhood and, and the impacts there. Um, but there's so much compassion there, right? Because they loved us and they, they did, did the best they could with what they had and the resources they had at the time. 100%. And how can we change that, right? This is your goal. How can we change that for our future generations? Yes. And so, you know, I learned a lot from my uncle and you know, I was just very fortunate that when I was in middle school, when really my life was going in a downward spiral, he was getting a master's degree in the hometown where I grew up and he would stay with us on the weekends and he would sit with me in the backyard and he would ask me these questions like the one I opened with, how are you feeling? Really? And he would do it in a way that just his facial expression, his body language, his vocal tone. I just wanted to tell him what was going on. I felt safe and I felt comfortable. And I just said all of the horrible things that were happening to me. And he didn't say, toughen up, get some grit. He just said, well, how are we going to get through this together? Mm. And, you know, I owe him, you know, my mental health. I owe him my, my career. Um, And so this emotion scientist versus emotion judge piece is really important to me because once we give ourselves the permission to feel, which is life's work, by the way, to be just fully able to accept that all emotions are information, that there's no bad emotion, that's a a lot of work. Then we have to become these curious explorers of our feelings and not critical judges. So the critical judge is like, my, I have an aunt who's like this. She's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't know. Like, you? <laughs> like, I don't know why you start off the conversation. I'm hearing something wrong. I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't Your know projections might be wrong. <laughs> Maybe I'm tired, but like, it sounds like you're projecting a lot onto me. Exactly right, Leah. And so this question of how are you feeling, the question of being honest and and truthful about what we're feeling. The emotion scientist is open, curious, reflective. The emotion scientist wants to get granular. So we, we, we know from research that there are people who are like clumpers of emotion and then the people who are granular. So the clumpers are fine, pissed, done. That's my, that's the extent of my vocabulary. The granules are like, gosh, you know, I'm not nervous. I'm anxious. No, I'm not anxious. I'm overwhelmed. No, I'm not overwhelmed. I'm feeling apprehensive. They have that specificity. And what research shows is that specificity actually is quite helpful. It's helpful for communicating, and it's really helpful for helping people to manage their feelings. And so the judge just doesn't really care about this stuff. Give you an example. Um, I gave this talk for a bunch of physicians, and this one veteran professor stood up after my talk, and he said, what happened to this university? What are you talking about? He's like, we produce Nobel laureates, not nice people. (laughs) Now, I happen to know this person. I know the people who work for this person. I'll just tell you right now, everybody who works for this person hates their job. 
Because nobody wants to work for someone who's a critical emotion nope. judge who doesn't care about feelings. I have so much respect for you because writing this book isn't just about the research. It's about your story. And, you know, being able to or having the bravery to share about your own experience, your past, um, Uncle Marvin, who's like the superhero in, in the book, and he's he is the original emotion scientist. It was just really powerful. And I imagined you writing this being sort of cathartic also, because it's a sharing of so much information about your experience. And I wonder if you can just talk about that, because I, I, I think there's a lot of power in showing up, not just as a researcher, but as someone who's open to sharing their story. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. You know, I'll be honest, it, it took me until I was 49 when I started writing my book. That's later in life. You know, I, I've had this story for my whole life, but um, I wasn't psychologically prepared to be fully authentic with the world around me. And, you know, for years, as my work became more known and I was more like popular in the psychology field and stuff like that, people would always ask me, so like, gosh, you're so passionate. Like, why do you do this work? And I would say things like I hated school, I was bullied, but it's not the real reason. The real reason is that I was robbed of my feelings as a child and I, I suffered because of it. And I see so many people suffering in the world and feeling as if, if they share their true selves, they're going to be judged. And so I'll be honest with you, I, I, it was safer for me to be my true self as I turned 50. You know, I'm a full professor. You know, I didn't have much to lose. And I hope that I can help people not have to wait until they're 50. Can you share some of what it was like to open up like that? Because I, I, the, the feeling or sense I get is there are some of us who are clumpers and a lot of us, some of us who are maybe the, what's the non-clumper? The granular. The granular, right? So some of us clumpers, some of us granular. For the clumpers, I can imagine there are multiple reasons. I don't want to project onto them that we don't do it or we don't do it. We, they don't do that investigation. What's it like when you actually start doing this work? Well, for me... You know, I had a, I had quite a lot of challenges growing up. You know, not only was I abused, but I had terrible bullying. I, my parents did something that was not very smart. They put me on public television about my abuse because I was a very preco- precocious kid. And so I, there was this weird opportunity for me to go on like national television about sexual abuse. And so I went on there and I'm like, you know, I would love to see this tape now because I was 13 years old when this happened. Little did my parents and I know that that was going to like have backlash, like no tomorrow. This is this, this is in the seventies, you know, parents told their kids not to play with me. The school teachers found out about it. It was bad, bad, bad. And I was alienated, like nothing I've ever, what I, I can't imagine anyone having to feel that way. It's like double abuse. Right. And wow. so, and I had an eating disorder. I, um, just so many things. And so I have to tell you that writing the book, I have never felt psychologically more healthy. Hmm. It was liberating to just, you know, and I didn't go into like, my book is not about me. Like, I want to say that right up front. Like, I did not want this to book to be like a biography. Like, I'm not writing a biography. But I felt the need to share like a piece of me so that maybe other people will feel safe and comfortable to, to be their true selves. 
But the, the heart of the book is the science. The heart of the book is the skills, you know, that I feel I never learned. Like, I, I'll, I'll give you one example. So when I was um, young, my parents put me in therapy. Thank God they did that because that was a real plus for them to do for me. But the challenge was, is that I was 12 years old, had just you know disclosed my abuse. I'm being bullied in school. So I go to the therapist, you know, for an hour a week, but then I go back into a home that was very dysfunctional and I went back to a school where I was chronically, you know, disengaged and bullied. And so like, it doesn't go anywhere. And my argument, and it's, I think science really shows this it being the case is that we can't make this about an individual. Like, it's not about you, Leah, and you, Jackie. Like, you know, you're suffering, so you develop your emotional intelligence. No, 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 no. This is about shifting society. This is about making sure that our government understands that feelings matter. It's communities, school systems, families, you know, religious organizations. Everybody's got to be on the Emotions Matter bus. And I think only then will we make real progress. There's a, you reminded me of a, a saying in leadership development, we talk about the fact that you can't put a changed leader in an unchanged system. Same idea. Yeah. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Your book, which you mentioned, is not about you, but about science and research and frameworks, which we definitely want to talk about today. But by you sharing your story, it made me feel so emotional. I was able to connect to it. I was able to relate in my own way. No one has the same story. No one's experienced the same exact thing. And yet we are all human beings. We are all in relationship and connection with one another. And we feel, we, we are human beings who feel. And so by you sharing your story, it allows the reader to connect on a different level and then apply the emotional framework and skill set that you teach in the book. I can say even for myself, since reading it and since downloading the Mood Meter, which is an app, um, which I'd love for you to share at some point today, I've even seen a difference in myself 
in terms of how investigative I'm being with my own emotions, like really even minor things. So for example, I was waiting for some photos to download from my friend who was sending them on my iPhone and I'm sitting there and I started typing, I'm anxiously waiting for the photos. And as I started typing, I said to myself, wait, am I anxious right now? I said, actually, I'm not anxious. I'm excited to receive the photos. So I changed it to I'm eagerly waiting Uh for the photos. And even just small moments like that, you know, we talk about this impact happens in micro moments and the self-awareness of being able to check in with yourself and how important that is. So just thank you for, for sharing your story and allowing us to connect with it. I agree with Leah. Like It's just incredible to really be able to see the liberation that has come with you sharing your story and how that's impacted you. I appreciate that. You know, what you're making me think about is, you know, I'm grateful that this has had that impact for you. But it's also saddens me that we have to wait, you know, for a book to come out, right? To be emotionally, you know, investigative and and self-aware and learn the vocabulary. You know, and it's why, you know, most of my career has been dedicated to building curriculum for school systems. You know, I'm proud to say that Ruler, which is our program, is now in 3,000 schools across the United States, many in Oregon, by the way, and many in New York and many in all over. And, you know, it starts, I, I think this is like a womb to tomb education, you know, because we know that how moms feel during pregnancy affects that fetus. Um, and now there may be research to show that how dads, you know, are responding to moms during these times can affect, you know, the fetus. And we know that moms' emotions when babies are born affect the way children learn how to read facial expressions and, and co-regulate and can be soothed and their nervous systems become when there's, you know, challenging experiences. And certainly when I went to preschool, I still remember, like, I'm introverted and so, and I was being abused at the same time. And so I was like a lot of fear in my body, but also not prone to like reaching out to meet people. And like, no one really helped me to like make friends and no one really was giving me a language to describe what I was going through or no one even created the space for me to communicate that. And honestly, all of us are now adults in the workforce and there's not much space for that now still. Yeah. So many people come to me and they say things like, you know, this is how much, you know, now that I've learned all of this, like, how much time do I have to dedicate each day? <laughs> Give me the homework and a practice period. Yeah. Is this going to be more than an hour? Because I can't do it. Mark, you know, I, you're reminding me of, um, like, I, I, I grew up in the Bay Area. And although it's diverse as a black woman, I grew up in areas that typically tended to, to veer more white. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned this fear in your body and I'm like, gosh, I, I was probably an extroverted kid, but I had that fear and I didn't recognize until my adult life that it was anxiety and, and all of, all of this living beneath the surface, so much of it based in race. And you talk about this in the book that there are differences in the way cultures can embrace or do embrace emotions or not, whether it be, you know, cultures within America or cultures outside of the U.S. And I I would say, you know, for a lot of us who are minorities in the U.S., a lot of our cultures do not deeply embrace the, the breadth of emotion. In fact, we're told not to talk about it or not to show it. 
And I think it's actually similar probably for people who are white in this country. It's just a different angle on the way that it's done. But I'm curious what you've seen in that. Well, I think, thank goodness and thank badness, you know, that race, you know, is so on the top of all of our minds right now. And I say thank badness just because of all these horrific murders that we've all had to witness. But the rules are different for black and white people in America, period. And, you know, as a white guy, I know that I have privilege in this space. I especially have privilege with expressing my negative emotions, right? So if a black male or female and I are walking down the streets of Connecticut, wherever, you know, wherever, and we're both kind of angry, the rules are different for each of us. I don't have to worry about the things that my black friends and family have to worry about. And this goes back to the point that I was making earlier, which is that it's not about the individual. Mm-hmm. It's about society, right? Until we have equity in our country or in the world around who has the privilege to express their true full feeling selves without repercussions, we're not doing the work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in my book, I wrote about Serena Williams, you know, here, you know, big personality, black woman, you know, she gets pissed during a tennis match, right? She gets penalized, you know, the white dude, you know, they let it go. It's like, what the hell's going on here? Like, mm-hmm. this is racism um, and genderism. Um, it's and that's a double whammy for someone like her and it's out of control and needs to be stopped and race is one big factor power is another big factor Um, people of higher power just have greater permission to say what they want to say and do what they want to do culture is a big one in terms of you know we americanos you know we think that we know everything and our way is the way that's what i think is so interesting like it's like no, in America, you look at like you look at each other in meetings, eye contact, and you shake hands. And I've done talks on Wall Street where like it's funny they come with their Versace suits and their fancy ties, and like, "Hello, Doctor Brackett," and I'm like, <laughs> "Hi." <laughs> I'm like, I need like a testosterone injection for this presentation. You sound like Batman. <laughs> That's my super ego. They're like, you know, like, and I'm like, what is going on here? Like. And then I go to Korea, which is my, I'm a martial arts teacher. That's my other, my other life. And like, nobody shakes hands like that. And people bow, you know, and they like, their eyes go off to the side out of respect. And that's what's right there. And so like, who's right? Nobody's right. That's the wrong question. It's just, let's all be curious emotion scientists going back to you, Jackie, and saying, let's just be learners as opposed to knowers. And then we make a lot fewer mistakes. You are speaking a lot about shifting society and the work that you're doing in the education systems is doing just that. And I found it so interesting how you spoke about your first few years going in with Uncle Marvin and all the work that you put in. And you felt like you weren't really making a dent. And you realized that the students, the children, the kids, they were excited and open and wanted to speak about their emotions, but it was the teachers, the principals, the superintendents, the leadership at the top mm-hmm. that actually were inexperienced with expressing their emotions or talking about it. And so can you share a little bit about how you're working with school systems today, You know, maybe specifically the ruler framework, which is incredible because 
to see it on such a large scale, like infusing it into an education system, but then also for individuals like Leah and I to apply it to ourselves and then to other people in our lives, like just that synergy is, is amazing to see. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. It's funny. You just reminded me of a story that I haven't told in a while, which was I was in England at this school and this principal, like a deputy head of an entire like school system was not really into the work. And um, she's like, this is never going to work here. And, and she goes, and especially for the boys. And I said, well, why? She goes, parents are going to think you're turning their sons into homosexuals. Right. And I'm like, well, you might be talking to one of those. Right now. <laughs> and like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I could even begin to deal with you right now. But anyway, you know, this is the mindset that some people have. And it's like, you wonder why like men are emotionally stuck. And so my favorite piece of that was like, you know, it's actually the only time I got to travel across, you know, to another country with my uncle to, to do a training together. And I said, well, we're here. So, you know, we might as well just try it out. Can we go into one of the classrooms? And so we go into the classroom and I share a story about, I forget what it was about being kind of left out and isolated and lonely. And I just said, you know, I'm just curious, everyone, has anyone here ever felt the way I felt? Every hand in the classroom and all the teachers and leaders of the school district were in a circle, like, you know, like a fishbowl kind of thing, watching this happen. And it was just like, I watched that woman's face like, you know, she just, her jaw dropped as if like, I, you know, like she looked like a fool. My favorite part of this, and I haven't thought about this in so long, is at the end, I just said, I'd love to know what you thought about this learning. And this one boy raises his hand. He goes, well, sir, for the first time I was involved. Wow. And so, right, again, so much learning is about the sage on the stage. And, mm -hmm. you know, what he was finally learning was who he was and discovering how he felt and how empowering that was. And so that's really, you know, that's the heart of my work of our center's work. Um, Ruler is an approach to what's broadly called social and emotional learning. As I said, we're in 3000 schools. We reached over 2 million children already, which is just mind blowing. That's so powerful. And, uh, in New York City, we're in 450 of New York City's public schools and many of the private schools, too. And, you know, it's a, it's this thing that's evolved from Uncle Marvin and me sitting in coffee shops, writing lesson plans back 25 years ago, to being a whole district system-wide approach. It's really about how leaders lead, how teachers teach, how students learn, how families parent. And if I could say it my way, it's about infusing the principles of emotion science into the immune system of the entire school. And so that means there are these mood meters that you were talking about, which are tools to help you be self-aware and learn language for emotion. One of the things that you could do actually, and we do in our workplace work, is we build something called the Emotional Intelligence Charter. So we talk a lot about how we feel, but we don't talk a lot about how we want to feel. And imagine with your team, if you just went around at a meeting and just said, well, how do we want to feel working together? Be interesting what you hear, right? Respected, supported, valued, appreciated, inspired. 
all right, well, what can we do together to ensure that we feel these feelings more frequently? So that's a tool that we teach and the kids created themselves. Um, I'm remembering you're going to love this one. So I'm in Seattle public schools and I'm doing a tour and I walk into this one classroom and they have this gorgeous poster of their charter, which is how they want to feel. And one of the words was selfless. And I was like, this is too good to be true. Like, this is ridiculous. And so the way I, you know, do my science in the streets is I just randomly go up to a kid. I'm like, you know, hey, you, like, I've never seen a charter with the word selfless on it. And this boy looked at me like with such a cute face. And he said, sir, we decided as a class that everyone's becoming narcissistic. (laughs) And so our charter word for this year is selfless i'm like who are you like where's where where are you from wow the future president totally (laughs) and i don't know we don't give kids enough opportunities to to shine this way you have a lot of quotes in your book from students and teachers and just studies that you've done which is really cool just to to feel that connection but there's a story of a classroom that has their charter and a new girl joins in their recess and, you know, she wants to play with them, but they think she's a little weird or they don't really want to play with her. But then one of the girls realizes, you know, our charter says that we're inclusive and that we include people. So they went over to her and included her and they actually really liked her and they found that it was so much better for all of them. Like that is so cool to see that immediate impact. It is. You know, honestly, I could tell I could do a whole week of stories just because of traveling around the world and visiting schools in Italy and Spain and Mexico and Australia. One of the things that both broke my heart but keeps me going is I was visiting a school in Australia and I a little boy, I, I went up to him and I was just talking to him about his feelings and and I had learned that his father had committed suicide. And there's a tool in Ruler called the Meta Moment, which is this process. And it, it really, the heart of the Meta Moment is being your best self. And I said, you know, I'm just curious. So how do you, you, you know, what does Ruler mean to you? And I, I always ask these weird questions to kids. And this little boy looked at me and he goes, sir, you know, my father died and I had to be my best self so I can be a role model for my little brother. Mm, wow. And of course I'm like, crying and you know like i'm like i gotta go to the bathroom (laughs) but i think we grossly underestimate you know how powerful it is to give kids the permission to feel and to give ourselves that permission at any age so mark you know we're talking a lot about children and schools and and yet we have all these adults living in the world Going to work. We're still children. Yep. <laughs> who are still emotionally anyway. All these children in adult bodies, right? I, hey, I agree. Just because you turn 18 doesn't mean anything about your. your I'm regressing. Your, I'm just saying I'm 51 and I feel like I'm turning into like a 12 year old. So. You're Benjamin Buttoning. So, one of the things that I, I think we make up, especially in the work, workplace, is that doing this work is going to take away from getting things done. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about if this is a myth or if this is true? It's a complete myth because here's what the research shows. A couple of years ago, we did a national study of people in the workplace, 15,000 people. We wanted to know how are people feeling at work? And we also looked at the emotional intelligence of their leaders and managers and supervisors. 
So take a deep breath because the findings are out of control. Let's just imagine we have leaders who are high versus low in emotional intelligence. So what's the difference on their teams? One, 50% difference in inspiration. Not 2%, not 5%, 50% difference. Emotions matter for creativity, for productivity. Imagine a whole group of people who are 50% less inspired than another group. Do you think there's going to be differences in productivity? Frustration, 40% difference. Job burnout, 25% difference. Intentions to leave the profession, 20 to 30% different. Ethical behavior at work, significantly different. It stinks to work with people who are unemotionally intelligent. I mean, maybe uh, we, don't, we don't want to get too, uh, too risky here, but have you ever worked for someone in your life who was emotionally not skilled? Yes. Yes. And is it like, do you wake up in the morning and say to yourself something like, gosh, I can't wait to go to work today. <laughs> <laughs> or do you like, oh, I'm going to look online for a new job or I'm going to call in sick today. We found even that people spend more time, just time off task because they're not motivated right, to work for that person. And so when you're not motivated, guess what? You spend more time on Facebook at work. You spend more time talking in the hallways. But when you feel inspired and connected and valued, and which are all related to the leader having higher emotional intelligence, creativity is higher. We actually just published a study on that. People are more creative and have more opportunity to be creative when they work for someone who's higher in emotional intelligence. So with that said, I'm a martial artist. I'm willing to spar with anybody who says that this is a waste of time. This is not a waste of time. Emotions matter for everything from relationships to mental health, to creativity, to performance. And being emotionally intelligent, especially as a manager, can shift everything. How are you seeing companies bring this into the workplace? Obviously, people read books like mine. Um, but I'm very fortunate that, you know, one of the things that happened to me a couple of years ago was I was doing these corporate presentations and they would, they would ask me, so what, what's the next step? I was fortunate to have a friend who had done a lot of work um, in the business world. And he and I and a bunch of others founded a company. We call it OG Life Lab, OJI Life Lab. And we have converted all of these principles and skills into uh, an app that is a solution for people who want to really go deeper. And it's 50 modules of emotional intelligence training with coaching because we felt like just doing the virtual, you know, learning was not enough. You really needed um, to talk with someone, you know, and be with people and like, wow, like you're also struggling with these feelings and oh, wow, you're also struggling with the strategies to manage. And we've had a lot of success. We've been really fortunate over the last couple of years we've launched and we've got big companies um, who have signed up, many of their employees, and feedback has been really positive. It's like that kid said, being involved made all the difference. Yeah. It's like actually experiencing and talking it through and living and breathing them in the workplace versus just taking a learning. And that's really exactly. how you see it become infiltrated. Well, the thing is, you know, we're like in 1970s with professional development, in my opinion, right? It's like the unconscious bias workshop. You got to be kidding me. Like it's just, we know the research shows it has no impact. This workshop thing. Yes, let's do that to get people inspired, but then let's take this stuff seriously and give people the opportunity to, to really learn something, practice something, refine it and grow. And that's why we built the company. There's a, there's this thing that I think has just catapulted because of COVID, which is 
leaders are being asked to show up differently than they ever have been. People are being asked to show up differently than they ever have been at work. And so I'm using this phrase of like, we're going from the hard skills to the soft skills to the inner skills that we have to actually start doing the work on the inside to be able to show up better on the outside. And that's never been asked of leaders in the way I think it's being asked today. As a matter of fact, got another study that we just finished. You are full of these studies. Yeah, I just I don't just report re- record podcasts for a living. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a really cool study. This one is actually with um, leaders, and what we found was interestingly enough. So when you think about a leader's emotional intelligence, you can think about the skills they use for themselves. Like, are they a role model? For example, like I've really worked in that because I grew up like with my mother that she'd always say things like, "I'm having a breakdown," and I'd be in meetings like. And like, once I get like uptight or nervous, it's like, Mark, how you feel? I'm having a breakdown. And it's like, okay, you're the director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence. That's not. (laughs) And so that's like me being the role model, like, Mark, can you manage your feelings? Can you show that you have the skills to regulate? And then there's Mark, the leader, who has to, like, say, you know, you were on our team, Jackie and Leah, like, when you come to me with your stress or anxiety, can I be supportive to you? So, like, the intrapersonal for me, interpersonal for you. Okay, so the research showed that not during the pandemic and like regular times, the interpersonal part was more important. That people wanted a leader who demonstrated empathy, who was good at perspective taking. But during the pandemic, the intrapersonal piece showed up as being important as well. And I think it's because when when like bad things are happening in society, you just want to know you have a stable leader. You want to know that your leader can manage their emotions and not be ruffled and be present. And that's the self-regulation piece. And so point is, you got to have both skills. You got to be self-aware and have the ability to manage oneself. And you got to be socially aware and really skilled at helping other people to manage their feelings. What can people do right now who've listened to this episode and gone, all right, I'm okay. I'm, I'm open to becoming an emotion scientist. What's one thing they can do to move towards that? Start with curiosity. Instead of judging your feelings and thinking, I'm an anxious mess, right? I'm a stress ball. I'm this, I'm that. Like a lot of us, catch me if I'm wrong here, but we're programmed from early in childhood to be very self-critical. A lot of negative self-talk whether it be about the color of your skin, the size of your body, your religion, you know, endlessly. And I know for me as a kid, like I, I was overweight. I was too feminine. I was too fat. I lost the weight. I was too skinny. Then I was this, I was that. And like my whole life was just literally, I was programmed by other people, which became my reality, right? I was gaslighted basically. And I started believing it maybe you are too feminine, maybe you are, you know, you, maybe you are this, and maybe your nose is too big, and maybe your hair is this way, and maybe this, and maybe this, and it just becomes your default. So if I could encourage our listeners to monitor their self-talk and try as fast as possible to catch the phrases that are making us self-saboteurs, which, by the way, activates neurochemicals that are not good for our health, which lowers our self-esteem, which just has a cascade effect on our wellness, and try to work on being self-compassionate and finding ways to be kind to oneself, finding ways to switch the negative talk to positive talk. And it's hard. One little 
tidbit is don't try to do it for yourself. What I mean by that is just imagine someone that you love deeply or care about a lot is going through what you're going through and just think about what you might say to them to help them feel less negative. And what's funny is that you'll come up with more ideas because you, you distance yourself from your own feeling states. And by thinking about what you might do for others, maybe you can then try to apply those things to yourself. And one last thing I'll just say around this is there's a phrase that we use and it's never worry alone. Mm. And when we feel insecure, when we feel strong negative emotions, we tend to isolate ourselves because we're embarrassed. We have feelings about our feelings, right? I'm embarrassed that I'm so anxious. I'm embarrassed, you know, about this. And isolation is the worst thing we can do for ourselves, even if you're an introvert. And so getting social support, having that trusted friend, whoever it might be, to talk with about our experiences, A, helps us to be in relationship, B, helps us to gain perspectives that are outside of our own, and C, helps us to problem solve. And so it's monitoring our self-talk and doing everything we can to move away from self-criticism and everything we can to move towards self-compassion and moving away from this notion that I have to solve this on my own and getting that Uncle Marvin. Mm-hmm. I feel like we can sit here and talk for hours and hours. I know Leah feels the same, could not recommend this book enough. I'll say one big takeaway for me, just in terms of labeling our emotions and just knowing how many thousands of words exist, at least in the English language, let's say, because there are differences across languages that we don't even use the majority of them. We use the same basic ones. So really understanding and learning the difference between envy and jealousy or anger and frustration and disappointment can really help with this vocabulary in terms of expressing your emotions. And I do want to leave our, our listeners with this one quote from your book, the currency of relationships is emotional expression. And I think everything you just described around the importance of expressing and sharing your emotions and being there with other people, we live in a world with people. So to really recognize that this is the currency that we're, we're working in can help us be our best selves for ourselves and others. You want to go on the road with me? <laughs> <laughs> Done. Signed, sealed, delivered. Thank you for inviting me to uh, your podcast. It was fun to talk with you. And I felt like, I mean, you know, I'm relaxed today for some reason, which is, um, and I'm like free associating, thinking about stories from like 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so thank you for evoking that in me. This is what happens when you join us in the arena. We really get into it. <laughs> thank you for being here, Mark. And thank you so much for our listeners for, for tuning into this one. Um, this has been such a powerful conversation. And I feel calmer actually now than I felt. So I will say I feel calm. <laughs> I've been using your mood meter, Mark. So for those of you who are listening, uh, again, Mark's book is Permission to Feel. And he also has an app called the Mood Meter, which is a really accessible way to start recognizing what you're feeling, understanding what the emotion actually is, and then helping you over time learn some of the environments that may evoke certain emotions. So that's what's been really powerful in my own experience. So thank you so much for being here. Um, you, of course, can find us on Audible, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. And we'd love for you to subscribe and rate us. And we will see you all next time. Have a great day, everyone. Bye.